Hi, this is Dr. Kimberly Leonard, and you're listening to Incredible Life Creator Podcast. My guest today is Sally Anderson. Sally Anderson is at the forefront of sustainable human and organizational transformation. She has privately coached key influencers internationally, CEOs, C-suite executives, teams, entrepreneurs, celebrities, politicians, millionaires, billionaires for over 20 years. What a journey. Welcome to the podcast, Sally. Absolute privilege to be here. Yes, so excited. So just so people can get to know you, uh, tell us your story, where you grew up and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Fabulous. So probably the first place to start would be September the 11th. I was working with a group of executives uh, five blocks from Ground Zero and an amazing assignment. So there were 3,000 projects at the height of the assignment. I was actually based in the Netherlands, accountable for Dordrecht, Rotterdam, Den Haag, Amsterdam, uh, Boston and New York offices. And so cultural change is my background, uh, implementing a projectized culture within organizations. Mm -hmm. But this was a, um, a global restructure. And I loved what I did corporately. But the millions of dollars would be spent on these change programs that I would implement, but I knew they'd never get a return on their investment three to five years after I walked out the door. So I always became fascinated about this elusive thing called sustainability. If you're going to invest money into change, let's make sure it's sustainable. The money that corporations spend on trainings, on coaches, on workshops, on um, consultants uh, for very questionable ROI back into the business. So I was on, in New York on September the 10th, uh, intending to be in New York on September the 11th, not realizing what was about to occur, mm -hmm. leading an executive um, meeting. And uh, I went and had a very lousy coffee near the base of the Trade Center Towers. <laughs> and I took a flight to Boston uh, on the 10th. And uh, so it was my wake up call being in America when September 11th hit that um, life could have been a lot different. And uh, as much as I loved what I was doing, I knew that I felt like a prostitute in the system without no offense. Um, because I was the one in the culture uh, implementing the changes. Uh, ethically, it was out for me. So when I returned to New Zealand, so I'm based in New Zealand mm -hmm. and have been operating offshore uh, internationally with high-end leadership clients for over 20 years. Love New Zealand. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Aotearoa, New Zealand is one of the best places on the planet, but I'm a bit biased. Uh, and then I uh, went out on my own. So that was 19 years ago. Um, and then I'll share at some point today what the trajectory is of that. So that was where, from a corporate perspective, sustainability came about. And then I'd been a course junkie for 30 years, name a book, a CD, a course. I read it, listened to it, went to it, <laughs> struggled to sustain the change. So this whole elusive thing around sustainability, both personally and professionally, was the birth of me creating a global first because nobody in the world at a leadership level, so no other leadership coach, no other leadership service provider, when you think about the sea of coaches and leadership service providers in the industry, uh, my point of difference is focusing on a sustainability element, a personal and professional transformation. Um, so that's where I focus and that's the education that I've developed and I term it co-creative leadership curriculum. My backstory, I was brought up in New Zealand uh, and my father was a guidance counsellor, so I am my father's daughter. Um, he was kind of like, um, you know, like a life coach in the days when nobody knew what a life coach was. He'd just sort kids' lives out. We had street kids in our house since I can never remember. Mm -hmm. And uh, he wanted to excel in his guidance counselling career, so he moved uh, four of us kids and my mother to Canada uh, when I was two. So uh, we lived there for four years, moved around quite a bit in Canada. Came back to New Zealand when I was six, so I had red hair, freckles, white, Canadian accent, didn't look the same, sound the same, think the same. <laughs> so my self-hatred, my uh, disconnection, uh, I felt different always, and different wasn't good at that age. Um, so I never fit in, fitted in, and I was always one of those curious children who always questioned why. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was brought up here in New Zealand, and um, then... When I was about 15, I got my first job hiring out skis at a local ski resort. I learned to ski on Whistler Mountain when I was a kid, and I uh, was very passionate about skiing. Mm -hmm. In the early 80s, a lot of kids used to hitchhike, so we hitchhiked into a local township. It was very rebellious. 
and we shot till we dropped. And if you knew the township, you'd realize that it was, you know, but you had your first pay packet that you could spend it on what you wanted to spend it on. So for your listeners today, if they can kind of like cast their memory back to that time, it was pretty cool. And again, rebellious, we decided to go into the local public bar. I was only 15, going on 16. And some people say wrong place, wrong time. Some people pay, say right place, right time. And I've done keynote speaking for over 30 years. And the premise of when I speak, I always say, you are never given anything that you can't handle. And when you hear my story, you'll understand why. Um, so we walked into the local public bar and what we didn't realize is that we were being cased out by uh, one of, a notorious gang here in New Zealand. So it was one of the worst reported gang rapes in the history of New Zealand in the early 80s. I was abducted uh, by the uh, notorious gang uh, in this location. I was taken around to their hangout. I was thrown onto a butcher's block like a sheep carcass and raped from every orifice by more than 100 mob members. Mm. Nobody saw Nobody survives an experience like that. I was conscious throughout the ordeal. Uh, you know, where were you when I needed you? I was the one carrying you. Um, given that I was conscious, I had to separate from my body, given what was being done to my body. Um, and so then they abducted me and threw me onto the back of a truck, four in the back, two in the front. Rapes would continue until we got to the other gang location. Again, rapes continued until I lost consciousness. I was missing for about a day and a half. Uh, the irony, the head of the mob um, in that particular location found me in the house. I'd beaten back in blue, couldn't walk, couldn't talk, uh, asked me where I was from. Uh, he ironically gave me clothes to wear, put me in the car, drove me back to my location and dropped me on the side of the road at seven o'clock at night. It was snowing. Um, and so after an experience like that, I go back to where I was living. I have a bath for a number of hours. I get up the next day and I go to work like nothing had happened. Obviously, police were called, um, parents were called. Now in the early 80s, there was very um, questionable support for the victim. I don't think much has changed. And um, the way I was treated was horrendous. Um, both uh, the way that they, you know, it was almost like you bought it on yourself. Um, and so the duty of care piece uh, was definitely not there. Uh, even though my father was a guidance counsellor, uh, my parents didn't know. I mean, what do you say to your daughter? They didn't know how to deal with it. So their strategy was, don't say anything. So I go back to school, act like it didn't happen, but it did. So I didn't come out about the story until I was about 30, I'm 55 now. And I lived into a good 15, 20 years of living hell. So I understand hell on earth. <laughs> but what I didn't realise is that well, that was my life apprenticeship for what I do today. Um, that I can look at the mobsters as my spiritual initiators for um, that had it not happened, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. I wouldn't have created what I've created. And I'm very clear that I've already died once. You know, when you've gone beyond the comprehension of human terror, face the terror of being potentially murdered, um, gang raped with more than 100 men, you kind of like learn a few things that aren't written in the textbooks of old. And so relating to the average human being has been difficult for me. Um, given the degree of disassociation, disconnection. So name any dysfunctional, <laughs> psychotic behaviour, I lived it. And so my passion for the education that I've developed is to actually change the face of counselling and psychotherapy. They psycho, I'm only talking about the dysfunctional aspect, they psychoanalyse what I term the default identity, that disempowered identity that we keep oscillating into, whereas I disappear it. Uh, that's the uniqueness of the education, which we'll talk into at some stage on the call. So the combination, I entered uh, senior management at an early age, 23, I always had great mentors along the way. So uh, in that environment, I could be in control. And I lived literally in back-to-back -back courses. Um, so I didn't go to a course to improve myself. I went to a course because I wanted to be able to survive to get to the next day and get out of the monkey mind. Mm -hmm. So there is, um, my, my guru-ness really lies in live coaching. Throw anything at me, any place, anytime, anywhere, and anything. I'm a coach intuitive. I coached a cause, not symptom. Dangerous woman to talk to because language is my vehicle to navigate where I need to go. I feel profoundly blessed to have the skill that I do and coach at the level that I do. Uh, I chose to um, coach at the highest level of leadership uh, because of the accountability that those people have um, and wanting to make a bigger difference on the planet. Uh, so 
part of my legacy is, is standing for um, your legacy matters. You know, legacy is one of the most profound conversations to facilitate with a human being on the planet. What are you doing here? What is your DNA calling you to be in the world? We all have individual fingerprints. You know, we've got something unique to contribute to the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe I'm also a spiritual initiator. So spirituality for me is about trusting the unknown as much as the known. I don't care what you call it, higher power, universal force, collective consciousness, God. I've coached everybody from every religious sect, spiritual sect, <laughs> atheist, um, and respect you know, what people believe. Um, but co-creation for me is about, I say to CEOs, what's it like trying to vacuum when you haven't plugged it in and turned it on? It's a bit tricky. <laughs> so, a tricky. Good way to say um, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good analogy. It's a good analogy. They kind of like get it. And... Um, so yeah, that's a bit about my backstory. That's a bit about what I do. That's a bit about uh, the education I've developed and we'll kind of like dance from there. Well, I'm very curious about how to have sustainable change. Because if you've done anything like, um, for example, something simple that a lot of people know about, you want to lose weight, become smaller, become more fit. You get on the the disciplinary piece and you start doing the exercise and eating properly and you're doing great and then something happens you get older or something changes in your health or you just decide you don't want to go to the gym anymore and so then you're back where you were until the next diet craze comes along so I I would like to know how do we make these changes sustainable Beautiful, beautiful. I find it funny that that's the, um, <laughs> given my own journey around my body, so could not have asked a better person a question. So the weight loss industry is a trillion dollar industry not interested in sustainable solutions. So I'm a threat to the weight loss industry. I'm a threat to the pharmaceutical industry because they don't want sustainable solutions, you know, because that's what keeps the money machine going. Mm-hmm. So given what was done to my body, so I lived in body dysmorphia for years, uh, there was literally me and then there was my body, you know, a complete separation because I had to exit it. Uh, the depth of my voice, uh, because I received so much oral abuse, uh, it damaged my vocal cords. So as a woman, I've keynoted for 30 years. So can you imagine what it's like when you're on stage and most people are trying to work out whether you're a transvestite or not? That's what they're thinking. They're not listening to your message. Um, and I've had to navigate that as a woman. Just wearing a dress doesn't make you feminine. <laughs> Um, And I'm still learning what it means to be feminine because obviously I had to exude a lot of masculinity because it wasn't safe to be a woman. Mm -hmm. But as far as weight loss is concerned, I have a a lot of my processes and education are very uh, unorthodox, but they get results. So here's my take uh, off the back of a lifetime. You name a diet, you name a fad, you name a process of (laughs) soy products for a year, lemon and ginger, intermittent fasting, um, you name it, I've done it. And uh, I feel as I've come full circle. So in, um, I was actually, that's when I was actually uh, in the year 2001, I did Body for Life, which was the first time Bill Phillips brought out the 12 week program, which became the worldwide craze of 20,000 other 12 week program. Mm -hmm. I lost two and a half stone and 15% body fat doing that program. And what I learned in that process was that I was my word for the first time. I'd never been before. I'd lie through my food diaries and you know, do my version thinking I was so my word, which I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I returned to New Zealand, I ended up doing body sculpting. Go figure. I'm an extremist. So, you know, you, and, and it was overweight relative to your own, um, your own. So I've never been over hundred K, but in my world, it was, you know, obese. Um, but it was always a complaint. Weight was always a complaint. And then I go to the other extreme, do body sculpture and got down to 58 kg and 8% body fat on stage. Crazy sport. Mm-hmm. And the irony of that journey is that I had Corey Everson on my fridge <laughs> for eight years, mm-hmm. one of the first bodybuilders in America. I wanted to look like that. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, the journey I went on with body sculpture, I ended up looking like that. I was a 10 man. I was like the, the pictures in the magazine. And I thought, of everything that I wanted in my life, that if I achieved that, everything was going to be fantastic. Well, I achieved that and nothing changed. (laughs) (laughs) It still wasn't good enough. Like I was like cut, like you wouldn't believe there's clothes that I couldn't even put one thigh into now. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's 16 years ago. And um, when I came second in my first competition, body sculpture, it was an extraordinary experience. The photos Mm -hmm. are just outrageous. 
Um, but what I learned was is that I'd, I'd gone through the physical transformation, but I hadn't integrated the, uh, the mindset transformation, yeah? mm. which I call your default identity. So I believe everybody has a unique default blueprint, which is getting back to your original question. Uh, and that blueprint is very, very solid, and I'll explain where it comes from. And I believe everybody has it is about seven different layers in my education. Uh, Awareness-based training is the education that I've developed. When you are aware, you can take your power back. When you're not aware, you have that oscillation going on. So I believe that weight is 90, upwards of 90% all about uh, protection. And there's a difference between what you feel that you're ready for versus the integration with, um, for want of a better word, you're in a child. So there's Sally the adult, Sally, little Sally, right? So Sally was ready, you know, out there doing it and all the rest of it, but the integration work hadn't been done. And so it was almost like this, um, you know, push me, pull me type reaction. So when I facilitate conversations with women, <clears throat> women specifically, um, the irony, I led retreats, three-day retreats every month of the year, 10 months of the year for 10 years. So that was a really good cross-section of mm -hmm. seeing beautiful, drop-dead, gorgeous women who were like seven stone, absolutely stunning, thinking that they were fat and ugly. Mm. Unbelievable, right? Um, you know, you, you got the cross section of psychosis. <laughs> um, but as far as the oscillation with weight, um, the way I would facilitate it is you usually live into a conversation called, um, I don't like it, I hate this, I feel frustrated by this. And my reframe is, you know, you actually love being fat, to which they are surprised. And they go, what do you mean? I go, well, Commitment equals results. Wherever the results are being produced is a function of your current commitment. Now that can land like a cup of cold sick mm -hmm. because half the time, most of us think that we're so committed because we're so busy and we're you know, doing all these things, but is it, yeah. is it necessarily producing the results, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I know about weight loss is that to retrain the muscular memory within your body, you have to go a minimum of at least 12 to 16 to 18 months of doing the same repetitive, consistent thing not necessarily, don't go anywhere near the scales, maybe once every quarter, but it's the consistency. So most people will do maybe 12 weeks, maybe they'll do six months, but that whole thing around they lose the weight and then the weight returns mm -hmm. is not due to, I mean, obviously some of the fad things that they do look like crazy, um, but the consistency and the application, most people will not go past, which is why they oscillate. So in the context of facilitating, you can't transform something that you're unwilling to own. And so the context of I love being fat because that's where the results are being produced. How long have you been trying to lose weight? Two, five or 10 years. And if you're still overweight, here's the deal. You're more committed to that in your default identity about yourself. In your more empowered aspect of your identity, different, right? But in your default level of identity, you keep defaulting back to that. And to me, there's only one thing going on. And that's about safety. And if you haven't done the healing, so coaching in isolation isn't sustainable. Healing in isolation isn't sustainable. Two together, very formidable. And most coaches haven't done the work. <laughs> most healers haven't done the work. You know, that's an industry that attracts the unhealed to try and heal the unhealed, you know. Mm -hmm. Don't even get me started on that subject. Um, <laughs> so as far as weight loss is concerned, does somebody who's overweight want to own that they love being fat? No. But unless you own it, you can't transform it. It doesn't make it mean anything. It's just, it's just what's so. Okay, got it right? And for me to be in that type of body that I aspire to be, thinking that when I get there, it's going to be better then, right? You have to die to this level of identity. It is a death. You hold on to any aspect of this identity, you'll recall back into it. And so awareness-based training is why I'm wanting in the schooling system. Um, you know, why do we talk about life skills and financial skills and all of the, the it is a no-brainer that we need to have so-called life skills, human skills, awareness-based training skills in the schooling system. But why are we still frigging we're talking about it? And why do we tolerate a schooling system that is still teaching the same frigging thing that we did, you know, God knows decades ago, you know, we're not, we're not evolving the consciousness of those coming through. So we're impacting future generations that aren't even born yet. And in the context of leadership, whew, leadership, as we know, it is dead. The traditional leadership model is dead. Most leaders who are unwilling to grow, evolve, or change before 
are now being forced to change and they don't know how to deal with uncertainty. Uncertainty is my domain. That's where the magic lies, you know, uh, in that whole unknown realm. You know, being out of control as a leader has never been something that's been kosher. You know, that's not okay, you know. So just back to the question, um, acknowledging that you love being fat is the first breakthrough without making it mean anything because that's where the results are being produced regardless of how long you've tried. Having compassion for that, having compassion for the little version of yourself as to why you keep retaining the weight. The weight's about protection and there's, there's healing to be done. Now, people listening to this recording could be saying, I've been doing healing for 30 years, you know, here's the deal. There's more work to be done. Layer of the onion, upon layer, upon layer, upon layer. One of the biggest breakthroughs I ever had with a healer, and I've seen healers for 30 years, name and modality, I've seen it, because I had it, that there was a lot to fix. Uh, said to me, your unique life apprenticeship, your unique life path, your unique life contract is unique to you. So don't even try and compare your journey to somebody else's journey. What's relevant for you is relevant for you. Wherever you're at on your journey is where you're meant to be at on your journey. Um, so comparison is something that um, a lot of people do um, that is not recommended. Um, as far as honoring and having compassion for your own journey. When I realized that I hadn't integrated and hadn't, and I was somebody who'd done the work, believe you me, but I was still retaining the weight. And right here, right now, I'm back on a fitness regime at the moment. I'm carrying about uh, 10 kg that I'm wanting to lose, but it's not in that type of rip shit and bust world that I used to do. It's not in the make wrong. It's not in when I'm going to be there, I'm going to be happier then. Um, I just know that for myself in honoring who I am and the work that I do, that there's something about being in the body when uh, being in alignment. It's like the turtles in the slipstream. I'm finding Nemo. You know, it's kind of like you're all over the place and then I get into the slipstream and it just takes you, you know. There's something about being at one with your body when you're in shape. You know, it's the truth. Um, so in my opinion, only based off my own experience, I believe weight is about protection, high percentage, and that if you haven't done the integrative work, um, you will not be able to sustain the weight loss because it's about being in a completely different identity. And the default identity, which is the one that wants to keep you safe, it's a very dysfunctional safety, but it is all about safety, is the one that's running the show half the time. Mm -hmm. So how, we, how do we move from our default to um, the way we actually want to be. Oh. So given the time that we've got today, probably can't go into full process, but I'll give you a bit of insight. So um, everything comes from childhood. I didn't design this people. It's just where it comes from. So it's always it's fascinating facilitating this with CEOs, right? <laughs> Sally, why when you're coming to see me about my business, are you talking to me about my childhood? I go, are you human? Uh, sorry, it just comes with the territory. Where you, where you are operating from, everything starts and ends there. So in the study of ontology, the study of what it is to be human, they distinguish that there were certain incidences in your childhood between the age of three to five, five to 12, 12 to 21, negative incidences where you separated and you decided something. So belief and values are adopted in childhood, both positive and negative. They then form the behaviors. The behaviors then form the structures, the structure, like a house has a foundational structure. Every human being has a foundational structure burst from the beliefs, the values, and the behaviors. The structures then drive the culture, who you marry, how you dress, where you live, your worldview, that then produces the results. Now, if you're wanting any level of sustainable change, you have to go back to the original wiring and rewire to then be able to change the behaviors, the structure, the culture, and the results for it to be sustainable. Now, most processes, however, who wants to revisit their past? Like, hello. Um, that so, was going to be my question. It's yeah, like, do we have yeah. to remember that yeah, again? Do, do we have to keep going back? There? I've yeah, done yeah. things like that. And I'm like, do I really have to say the story one more time? Yep. Yep. <laughs> so what I've created is a process where I, and I say to people, I have zero interest in dragging up your past. But because of my process around the default of, um, identity, I want to go in, I want to take a snapshot, get the hell out of there, and then for you to be able to see where it originated, because awareness-based training, being aware of the what happened, why you keep regurgitating it, why you keep flogging it, why, you know, if your past is in your future, the good litmus test to know whether you've, whether you've done the healing. If you keep putting your past in your future, you've got more work to do. You know, <laughs> when the past ain't in your future and it doesn't impact you at all, then you've done the work, you know? 
and that's not to say that you won't continue to evolve and change and all the rest of it, but um, nobody's past can be in their future unless they're the ones putting it there, as far as sustaining change is concerned. So an aspect, so the seven layers of the default blueprint, as I call it, one is the formation stage, which is managing the context of where you operate. Where did that start? And that's just a very short process. Mm -hmm. Being able to understand, um, I call it your default theme. There is a theme that runs, that's unconscious, that's running everything at a default base level. So my theme, my default theme is sabotage. Anything good in the past, I would sabotage it because that would be incongruent to what my default thought, right? So anything of, a, of, of somebody being nice to me, um, meeting somebody nice, um, any uh, windfall, and I would have to sabotage it, yeah? Um, so the irony, the two most dysfunctional areas of my life, which were relationship and finance, had to do with self-worth. My self-worth was dead. Yet the irony is the two most powerful areas I coach in are relationship and money. <laughs> I make me very wealthy off the back of my dysfunction, right? Because mm -hmm. most people are running some story about they're not good enough. That is the base belief of every human being on the planet. Yeah. And, you know, we're not doing about anything about that in the freaking schooling system. It's crazy, you know? Um, so there's the base belief, which is coming out of the context mastery about those negative incidences. That's the formation. Landing what your default theme is. Landing what your default traits are. Um, we all have certain traits that make up our personality within that default identity. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so rescue a martyr was one of mine. I'd rescue everybody and then be a complete martyr wondering why they'd shit on you after the fact. You know, it's kind of, what are you doing? I'm trying to help you. Um, but I had to always attract that type of energy. Um, I would always have to create crisis to then survive it. So that was a survival dynamic to keep that dynamic in place. Um, very dysfunctional. Um, so the default traits and the default theme run a lot of the default behavior. Mm -hmm. If you don't know about it, you don't know how to take your power back from it. And everybody, um, when it's facilitated, knows exactly what they are when I give them the options, as they can see. Um, I believe everybody has a core belief. This is very unique to my education. It is so dark, so dark. So imagine 10 years every month, 10 months of the year for 10 years facilitating retreats. 10 people every time, sometimes 12, sometimes 15. Religiously for 10 years. That was an amazing case study. I would facilitate in every single retreat what people's core belief was. It's one hell of a facilitative process. Uh, nobody would want, uh, and part of the, the course curriculum is that you don't share what actually happens in the retreat because of the privacy and the confidentiality of what's facilitated. But every retreat I facilitated core belief and it is the most negative, dark statement, belief that you have about yourself. I believe every human being has one. They don't know it's running. So the, the power of awareness-based training, when that's unearthed and the landing of going like a, a ticker tape parade over 30 years of going, oh my God, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I never knew it was running. But I go, okay, here's the deal. Once we've landed it, if you've achieved everything that you've achieved with that running and you didn't even know it, what on earth could you achieve if it wasn't? So then we quickly change that into an affirmative statement, which is co-created by the group. Mm -hmm. And then that becomes their new affirmative statement that they then live out of and find evidence for. But it's the power of awareness-based training that's giving them insight into um, you know, what's running the show. Now, everybody's different because they've all had different upbringings, regardless of how good or bad your childhood was, is irrelevant. Because one of the biggest insights that I got in leading over 10 years, which I found fascinating, is that somebody's cat could have died, and that was the worst thing that they've ever experienced, and it's relative. Somebody's experience is relative to them. Mm -hmm. Those that experienced next to nothing were more dysfunctional than those were that were warranted to. 100, really yeah, yeah, yeah. 110% of the time. It's never about the event. It's always about the happening and what people make the happening mean. So mm -hmm. all of human suffering is a function of what we make things mean. You stop making everything mean something, you can stop suffering. But people actually like the suffering because that then validates their self-belief about themselves, which is where the victim feeling powerless to change the situation comes in.
Uh, so I'm just wondering, is the theme the same as the belief that you no. have of yourself? They're two different things. Yep. Yep. Uh, similar, because, you know, <laughs> they're all negative, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, and he's, he, I've never said this publicly before, but it feels right to say it. I'd say upwards in 10 years of facilitating that core belief process, upwards of 60 to 70%, the core belief was around not wanting to be on the planet. There was some suicidal aspect of their core belief. Now, these were high-powered CEOs that you'd never, ever think at any level, at any level, on, you know, but when you're in that type of environment and you take away all of the, <laughs> and, you know, when the process was facilitated, obviously there's a lot of work to get to that point, and the bravery of declaring, you know, and how to facilitate it and how to get access to it. Um, unbelievable to witness. Mm -hmm. um, and so I also have been a stand for eradicating teen, suic teen suicide most of my life outside of what I've done corporately. Mm -hmm. um, I believe I have this a solution to, the, um, to anything of a dysfunctional nature be that depression or suicide or whatever, you put me in front of somebody who's suicidal and within an hour they'll go out and buy a bottle of champagne. Uh, I can shift anybody out of anything because I understand the dysfunction, you know, um, but I have a skill on, on being able to have it land for the other party regardless of how long it's been running. So I have two processes that I use. And that's the other thing. When you look at um, uh, psychotherapy, it's quite a long process, mm -hmm. a deep process and a long process, and there is a time for it. Um, counseling the dysfunctional aspect of counseling is a very long process but a very shallow process when somebody's paying for the privilege of dragging out their story for year 10 15 and 20 years seeing the same freaking counselor i've got a bit of an issue with that yeah. the rah-rah seminars get your short shot of euphoria feel great for a while and back in the same old same old they're actually designed for you to keep going back so they're a short process but a shallow process so where I position my education is that it's a deep process, but it's a short process. People want friggin' results. Yeah. They've been there, done that. They've done the avatars and the Anthony Robbins and the, you name it, the plethora of landmark education, the, you know, the plethora of personal development work, which are all great in their own way, right? Mm -hmm. But my focus is around sustainability. I'm, you know, most people I'm in front of are highly, highly trained. They've done everything in the traditional leadership model. They've done everything in the personal development model. They yawn at the prospect of yet another freaking training because they're unconsciously competent in that linear traditional world. But when it comes to, well, have you achieved the level of transformation that you've wanted and have you been able to sustain it? Nine times out of 10, they say no. Mm -hmm. And that's my frustration is that you're so freaking well highly trained, but you're not applying what you know beyond the default because you don't even know you've got one. And you don't understand the nuances of what's driving that. So I'm wanting my education kind of like as a sustainability toolkit in the hands of those making um, a difference with the human condition. I'd love to see it as an adjunct to counselors and psychotherapists and the whole, you know, anybody working with the human condition, that they have this adjunct um, that's complementing what it is that they do, but it's dealing with the idiosyncrasies of what's missing around the sustainability element. So going back to the schools, yep. what kind of education should our children have? When should it start? How do we make that transformation so that our kids growing up can be leaders, can overcome their themes and their running um, negative feelings? So there's two things here. Um, before I answer that question, I'll talk about a thing called culturalization, which I've written about in both of my books. The only way currently that human beings evolve is through adversity, whether it's acts of God, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, pandemics, um, you know, as much as there is a viral pandemic going on, we've got a fear pandemic going on because of the lack of consciousness on this planet, right? It's highlighting how unconscious people are to be able to equip themselves to deal with the unknown, which is where I live. <laughs> um, so culturalization is the concept of if we don't change the way the schooling system is, we'll keep the numbness and the disassociation there because we're not evolving the thinking. If we're not changing traditional leadership teachings and we're not evolving that, that will stay the same. Mm -hmm. And so the only way that awakening can occur is usually through adversity of some form of mass awakening, which is what's happening at the moment. Mm 
But there is another way, I believe, <laughs> which is which is changing the fundamental tradition. So in moving away from traditional leadership to non-traditional leadership teachings, which is what I advocate, and in the schooling system, something as simplistic as mastering the inner critic. So I had one of the worst inner critics, high volume, 24-7, couldn't turn it off. And I know that that is a perfect apprenticeship for what I teach. So I don't teach managing it, coordinating yourself around it. I teach mastery of it. Can you imagine? So I can meet a nine-year-old child who's got a heinous inner critic, 24-7, just beating the crap out of them. I can meet a 49-year-old client who's had four decades of self-beration, and yet it's still achieving amazing things, which is quite extraordinary. Um, so the inner critic annihilates human potential. Everybody has one. Nobody's talking about it. Like, when was the last time somebody said to you, how's your inner critic thing? <laughs> to be human is to have one. Nobody's talking about it. It needs to be like maths or science in the schooling system. You need to be taught what is, why do we create an inner critic? What is it about? Where does it come from? How do you, I mean, there's books out there that say flick your rub, a rubber band around your wrist every time the inner critic. Is it not inflicting enough pain? This is freaking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unbelievably <laughs> crazy. <never> <laughs> So my process is very short, very sharp. It makes sense. It gets results. It's unorthodox, but it gets results. So one process deals with how to master the inner critic. One process deals with how to uh, shift any disempowered state. Because the key to self-mastery is not about not getting triggered. It's the length of time you spend in the trigger. A minute, an hour, a day, a week, a month. Some people go to their graves being triggered. So being able to... So evidence-based people are waiting for evidence to show up before they trust which is the majority mm -hmm. versus trust and possibility based people know that if they trust the evidence will show up. Mm -hmm. So part of my job is to create evidence really, really fast for those evidence left brain thinkers so that they buy into the process. And so the more that they can shift in their thinking, the more evidence and then they'll trust and then they'll do, 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 do. because if you're waiting for the evidence to show up, it's kind of like, don't hold your breath you know, because you'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know, from that standpoint. So as far as the schooling system concerned, I am a stand to the day I die to have mastery of the inner critic in the schooling system. I'm a stand to have co-creative schools, co-creative universities, um, you know, champion the human spirit, feed the human soul. Um, I, I, the second book that I wrote was uh, The Co-Creative Age, The Next Evolutionary Phase in Leadership. When you mention the word faith in corporate world, everybody goes west they either collapse it into religion i've got i've got no disrespect for religion i'm personally not religious but i have supported many people who are religious and i honor what any anybody's path is however when you there's only two things that really matter as far as a human being is concerned one is faith and one is love right so i basically take love and faith into the highest level of leadership that's what i do every day but i frame it in the word co-creation seems to be the most palatable world that the corporates can get their heads around. And so co-creative schools, co-creative universities are who you are in your human form is limited. Who you are in your co-creative form is limitless. Mm -hmm. And co-creation is not about collaboration on this level. Co-creation is about being able to tap in and be the conduit. You're just the conduit for information to come through you. Your intuition is your GPS. And you know, if any of your listeners have children um, you know, prior pretty much to the age of three, maybe five, depending on their experiences, um, they, are, they are in the beingness state. They are in the zone the majority of the time. One minute they cry, one minute they're laughing. You know, it's kind of like instantaneous, you know. Um, you know, it's just, I, you I have know? a two-year-old granddaughter. Oh, there you go. And there you she go. can be laughing and having a great time, falls down, hurts her finger, and she's crying. <laughs> Crazy, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so we're born into the unknown. We're born into that being the state. We were born fearless. We were born intuitive and we were born connected. That was our birthright. That's the other thing I do is bring people back to their innate birthright. You were born fearless. You were born connected. You were born intuitive. That was, that was how you were born. You don't have to learn this stuff. You need to reclaim your power because you have an innate knowing of that area. Yeah. Because when you're saying that I'm thinking, yeah, I want to feel all that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do. Yeah. Yeah, and it's there. It's there. But if we don't trust the unknown, if we don't trust, you know, pe you know, people who have no concept of faith, what do you mean? I'm supposed to be speaking into the ether, like it's in that woo-woo world, right? Especially in corporate, right? So being able to facilitate conversations to make all of that normal and actually 
I don't care what you call it. We'll call it energy if that's what's going to work for you. But, you know, humor me. Come in with your skepticism, your cynicism. It's all good. Right? But let's find some evidence because I'm unconsciously competent in the co-creative realm. There's not a millisecond of my day where I'm not connected. I don't need to call it anything. I'm not attached to calling it anything. I'm just connected to it 24-7, which is a profound experience. So self-actualization or what I term equanimous leadership, the ability to be the observer of what is, not how it could have been, should have been, wanted it to be, teaching leaders on how to um, stop being addicted to stress and overwhelm and all those crazy things that leaders love to do um, and actually uh, bring a bit more zen into the environment because when you shift, your people will shift, you know, just by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as the schooling system is concerned, we need to mandate life skills, human skills in the schooling system. Stop talking about it. Let's just mandate it globally. We need to have mastery of the inner critic in the schooling system as a subject that is um, as um, mandated as maths or science uh, because it is, I just find it unbelievable in the year 2020, given that every single human being on the planet has one and nobody's talking about it. You know, Why on earth do we not teach people on how to silence it? Now, when I've worked with elite athletes, they've had a bit of an issue with this because they've said they've actually used their inner critic as the reason why they've excelled um, in their athletic you know, peak performance ability. Mm-hmm. And I go, so acknowledge them, acknowledge them that they've actually used it for a positive, you know, but meanwhile, they're beating the crap out of themselves to be able to meet that target or meet that new rating or whatever. There is another way without having to beat the crap out of yourself is where I come in to still achieve that elite level of status, but without having to beat the crap out of yourself. Um, so I feel privileged by my life apprenticeship that I lived through it to be able to work it all out, to be able to then come back and be able to pay it forward. But I've been talking like this for the last 20 years. So 20 years ago, this wasn't as palatable as what it would be now, mm-hmm. which is why I feel as I'm coming into my prime, mm-hmm. is that now there's more receptivity because people are being forced into this world of uncertainty, which I believe is just like, bring it on, baby, that now we're talking, you know, whereas the palatability before wasn't there because mm-hmm. there was that safety of the known, known world. So just mastery of the inner critic would change the entire face of the human psyche as we know it, if, mm-hmm. if we were teaching that. Um, if we were to bring the life skills, human skills mandated across the world, and this is not in any way, shape or form discrediting those schools out there that are at the forefront of making those types of changes, it just needs to be mandated globally. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason why I believe, um, and I don't want to get into my, I'm not a conspiracy, theorist or anything like that but I do believe there is a level of big brother going on about how we control the planet and uh, what our thinking is and how much and when and how and media mm-hmm. um, you know as much as we talk about um, uh, you know recessions and depression um, you know it's primarily fueled by the media you know mm-hmm. um, so for it to be mandated for it to change um, you know, uh, there is a lot that needs to be done. It's like the weight loss industry. It's like cancer. It's like a lot of the illnesses, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm brave enough to say I believe that they have solutions to a lot of those things, but they won't bring them out into the market, you know. Um, well, they do. Or if you have one, they just try and smash it yeah. down so nobody yeah. can find it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, 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 yep. So there's people like myself who keep plugging away. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, how do we feel powerful and um, within ourselves and feel peaceful with everything going on outside of us? Really great question. Really great question. So the mantra I live by every day, there's a few things because I understand the monkey mind, right? Mm-hmm. Very dangerous territory up here. <laughs> so a number of things. One, the most successful strategy for every successful person on the planet is the implementation of morning practices. You've got to fuel the car to go the distance to reach the destination at the speed with which you want to go. You don't put petrol in the car, you're going to be all over the place. So as far as how do you deal with everything that else is going on, you need to fuel the car to be able to um, equalize your equilibrium. So my, my day is usually I meditate from the first, from the time I get up, I do a 30-minute walk. On that 30-minute walk, I'm listening to every single goal that I want in my life in the affirmative as if it's already happened on an audio. I'm listening to affirmations that are pre-recorded. I have, um, uh, I always listen to a motivational podcast. 
Um, so I'm always learning. That's in the 30 minutes. I come back. I, I've got my food regime going on and I do my gratitude journal. That's religious mandated every morning. That fuels me to be able to... Now, you have a day where your boundaries aren't in. You're all over the place. Boundaries, boundaries first, life second. So first recommendation is morning practices thousand percent helps you deal with this mm -hmm. to keep your equilibrium and i challenge anybody listening just go for seven days if it's not something that you do religiously mm -hmm. keep seven days and i guarantee if you just were to do your version of that you would feel a thousand percent different to what you currently do regardless of what's going on in the world so morning practices mm -hmm. mandated number two is the mantra that i live by think do say be forward the game for this mantra to work you need to know what your game is so i'm very clear on what my game is um, and it's not like Sally Anderson wants to I go. The, the calling is beyond me. Uh, mm. I've done the years of, I've done the years in the trenches. It calls me force. Uh, I've become my vision. And so I take responsibility. How many, how many personal development books do we need to read that say, be very careful what you think your thoughts create your reality. Well, they do. <laughs> the people aren't taking responsibility for where their thoughts are focused, right? And in my observation of those that are highly trained, that have done all the healing, done all the personal development works and all the rest of it, what is the point of doing that unless you apply what you learnt? You have all the knowledge, but you're not applying it beyond your default. You're letting yourself off the hook because you're not your word. Mm. We're our word to everybody else, but we're not our word to ourselves. Because if you were your word to yourself, you'd die to that default level of identity. You just would. So think, do, say, be forwarding the game applies like this. Is what I'm thinking forwarding the game? If it's not, I don't think it. Is what I'm doing forwarding the game? If it's not, I don't do it. Is what I'm saying forwarding the game? If it's not, I don't say it. And then who I'm being on a day-to-day -day basis, is that forwarding my game? If it's not, I don't be that. I live by that to the frigging letter. Now that trains you to live at a very high degree of integrity. Can you see that? Yes, I now, do. Then when people say to me, Sally, do you mean to say that I've got to monitor every single thought I have on every single moment of the day? It's exactly like the 15, 16-year-old in the car. It's a bit clunky at the start. Right, but it doesn't stop you getting into the car now, and you don't even have to think about it because you're unconscious, incompetency, unconscious competency, right? Mm -hmm. um, so it's the same with the education. Uh, clunky at the start, but the self-interest to be able to be so in the slipstream, so in the vortex, you know, so in the zone, because any form of mis any form of conflict is a function of misalignment. Most people are misaligned, which is why they're experiencing the conflict. They need to get they need to identify where they're out of alignment to get back into alignment and stay in alignment. But to stay in alignment, that identity is very different from this identity, yeah? which is where the healing work is needed. Um, so it's recommendation number two. So morning practices, mandated, sorts out the monkey mind a thousand percent. Think, do, say, be forward the game. Get very clear on what the game is. You know, mm -hmm. Nine times out of 10, when people go, you know, I'm not getting what I want. It's not working. I go, well, what do you want? Oh, <laughs> if you ain't clear to the universe, like, to the, you know, very difficult for the universe to give it to you, you know? Um, so clarity about what you want is extremely important. Um, there is enough on the internet that is for free that can answer any frigging problem you've got on any level up the yin yang, right? So when people say I can't afford, you know, X, Y, Z, bullshit is what I usually say, right? Um, but that's a convenient, you know, relinquishment bucket. Just on relinquishment buckets, there are five relinquishment buckets that human beings love, love. I call it the ludicrousy cycle. Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't have enough time. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough energy. I don't know how. And illness, manifesting illness to abdicate responsibility. Right? <laughs> so I would facilitate this in group. So tell me what yours are. And they go, oh, oh you know, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough energy. Or I don't have enough time. And they'd all rattle it off, right? Uh -huh. And I'd go... Think, and then you start listening because it's now on the radar. You know, it's kind of like I <laughs> brought it into your line of view. Start listening to friends and family and all the rest of it. The amount of times we as human beings say those five things, negative affirmations, and then wonder why life is showing up the way that it is. We are the creators of our reality, right? If we keep saying, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough time, I don't have <laughs> hello, that's what you're creating. You're the one creating the dysfunction, you know? All of human suffering is a function of what we make things mean. You're the one who's a meaning-making machine creating all of the dysfunction, thinking that life's doing it to you. Yeah? So being able to distinguish where you're relinquishing responsibility, because here's the thing. 
Somebody who's committed will always find the time. Somebody who's committed will always find the energy. Somebody who's committed will always find the money. Somebody who's committed will always work out the how. And somebody who's committed will not will look after their welfare so they don't have to manifest the freaking illnesses. You know? Yes. It's just, you just put it out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Easier to say than do, though, I think. (laughs) That's a lot to overcome because it's habit. It's just habit. Well, yes and no. So yes and no. Because that's the other thing human beings love. They love making everything hard. Transformation is actually very simplistic. We complicate the hell out of it, okay? Confrontation, resistance, and uncomfortability are the cornerstones to true transformation. So who wants to be confronted, resistant, and uncomfortable all the time? That's half the reason why people don't transform. Mm-hmm. You've got to transform your relationship too. Weight loss is a, is a great example. Do I really want to drag my sorry ass out of bed at five o'clock in the morning to go walking? No, but there's certain people who do religiously seven days a week, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so I've just returned to thought what we were talking about. Um, Transformation is easy. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So why do we read so many books that talk about, um, you know, commitment and responsibility and all that, but they don't talk about the key aspects that you need to know to be able to have that work, which is you need to fall in love with being resistant because every time the, from the minute you wake up, resistance. From the minute you put your clothes on, resistance. You get in the car, it's resistance. You get to the bottom of the steps, it's resistance. It's resistance all over the place. No bus is talking about resistance. You, know? <laughs> you need to, to be transformed in any area. You need to transform your relationship with resistance. You need to fall in love with that puppy. You know? mm-hmm. Same thing with being confronted. Same thing with, res- with um, uncomfortability. It's always frigging well uncomfortable when you're trying to transform habits that have been there for a lifetime, right? Really? Um, so but so that's where i do a lot of reverse psychology as a change agent you need to fall in you need to go looking to be confronted go looking to be uncomfortable go looking to be resistant go looking to take those actions that constantly have you in that state and then you'll that'll become your new norm that's my norm i live there all the time push the boundaries on it all the time and what i've found evidence for because i live on the other side is there's actually nothing there. <laughs> it's a bit like fear, you know? Oh, I'm so fearful. You know, we'll go to that which you feel fearful of and see it for what it is. There ain't nothing there because it's all about projections, right? So just on that, mm-hmm. from the minute human beings get out of bed to the minute they go to bed, usually they ain't here. They're either out in the future creating a world that's not even here yet or they're dragging in something from the past and they're living in that oscillation world. So just really quickly, <laughs> give an example of one of my processes. It's called the rest of process. I got this by doing Vipassana. So I've done 20, 30 years of meditation, some crazy meditative beliefs. Um, and I've come, come full circle to just knowing that the breath is the most priceless thing on the planet, being at one with the breath. Without practices and music and all the rest, but just silence and the breath is pretty, pretty cool. That's the other thing I'd recommend is if, if people can't get their head around meditation, get your head around it because it's the best thing you'll ever do. Um, Keep losing my train of thought. What we're talking about? Um, oh, Vipassana. So I learned this process out of Vipassana, which was uh, a ten-day meditation retreat, no eye contact, no communication for ten days, twelve hours of meditation every day. Now, for a Westerner, that just sends you mad. <laughs> <laughs> and because you can't talk and you can't have eye contact, and I'm a channeler, so I'm downloading all this information. I can't write anything down. By the time the ten days was up, I was like, "Get me a piece of paper." <laughs> and and which is where I truly learned about equanimity as well. So it's my favorite word. Uh, the ability to remain equanimous mm-hmm. just is what it is. It just is what it is. The meaning is what kills everything. <clears throat> so with, um, equanimity, meditation, um, the ability to be able to, live in the now moment devoid of these projections. So let's just use depression. So I use one process to get anybody off depression drugs. It's very unethical. It's very unorthodox. It gets results though. <laughs> and, sustain- and sustainable results, you know, and that's why I'm controversial. That's why people, you know, um, won't come anywhere near me because I have a non-drug related solution. Uh, and I'm not academically trained. I've just had a shitload of life experiences. And so I can get ostracized a lot because, you know, you know, you're not a psychiatrist, so you're not, but you know, I've run circles around most psychiatrists and most counselors I've ever met. 
not discrediting those professions. Um, but the rest of the process for me is, say, depression. Somebody's feeling depressed. And in their world, I get that that is very valid for them. But my issue is that you then go to a doctor who you're supposed to trust, and you're then doubly disassociated by being put on depression drugs. And here we go, you know, 10 years later, 15 years later, you know, there is another way. I'd say it's an 80-20 rule, 20% where it is valid, where there is definitely a chemical imbalance, but I'd say upwards of 80% in my observation of people I've worked with, which has been in the thousands, um, tried and proven many years. Um, what I love is bringing simplicity to complexity. So if you can appreciate somebody who is feeling depressed, they're in what I call reaction. Could be fear, it could be confrontation, it could be lack of confidence, it could be anxiety, whatever. But in this example, we're just going to use depression. So they're in reaction. So there's a difference between reacting and going into default versus observing it. So in phase one of reaction, you name it. So the feeling is giving you access. You're reacting to the feeling. So you're feeling depressed. And then immediately looking at, hmm, I'm feeling depressed right now is different because you've shifted it from just observing it, naming it and observing it. And you do that in that phase one of reaction. Interesting, I'm feeling depressed right now. Recognition, asking one question, what ex what's actually really going on? Don't deviate from that question, this process week. What's actually really going on? Oh, this is uh, evaluation. Hmm. I'm disconnected. What am I feeding? 100% of the time, if you're depressed, you're feeding something either out into the future, which is where the worry world comes from, or you're dragging in something from the past. You know, you're just not present, right? So it's acknowledging that you're in your past, you're either past, future, or both, landing that. Okay, I'm feeding a bit of the past, I'm feeding a bit of the future, or I'm feeding both. Land that. Got it. Now, to shift the sensation of what it is that you're feeling is a function of knowing what you're motivated by, which is a separate process. I facilitate for people. If you want to sustain change, you need to know what motivates you. Why do you get out of bed in the morning? Why do you do what you do? You know, so I'm, I'm motivated by love. I'm motivated by faith. I'm motivated by freedom. I'm motivated by joy, harmony, fun, whatever it is for people. You know, got to know what you're motivated by to be able to shift the sensation. And when you are disempowered, you are in little boy or little girl mode. Nine mm -hmm. times out of 10, when you're ever disempowered, you got that version of yourself running the show. So it's training yourself to realize how much you've got the little version of yourself running the show reconnecting to your motivators and shifting your state. Now, people can go through that process and get it analytically. If you can't shift your state, there's only one thing going on. Study of ontology, the study of what it is to be human, they distinguished there were certain things that have a human being stay in a dysfunctional state. It's called stock standard ontological payoffs. I get to be right. I get to make others wrong. I get to be justified about my point of view. I don't have to be responsible here. I get to be a victim, powerless to change the situation. I get to dominate, manipulate, and control. The only thing stopping somebody shifting their state is that the payoffs are outweighing what it's costing them. Mm -hmm. And because they're not aware of the payoffs, awareness-based training, that, again, study of ontological teachings needs to be in the schooling system, part of these co-creative schools that I talk about. Because ontology is a study of what it is to be human. We're all human. It comes with the territory, right? If you're aware of what ha why you're staying in that state and what you're getting out of it. So I'm not training people to be happy, clappy people. I just want everybody to know what's actually going on. And Because confusion is the biggest relinquishment bucket for a human being. How freaking convenient you're confused. You don't have to take responsibility for what's going on. And then we'll drug you. Yeah, that's, that's just fantastic. You know? And then we'll never come home. You know? So... <laughs> So when I'm taking somebody through the RISA process and they can't shift their state, I'll just jump over to the payoffs, you know? And here's the deal. If you want to get more out of it, that's, that's all good. But I would rather that, Sally, I'm more committed to being a saboteur. I'm actually more committed to being a martyr. I now know that that's where I'm choosing to stay. Cool. Fill your boots, right? But don't go another week, another month, another year, you know, manifesting illnesses and bitching and moaning about why not when you're the one creating the freaking dysfunction. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Yeah. So all of the dysfunction of the meaning we create are just these past and future-based projections. So stop frigging feeding these, come back to the present, learn how to understand 
you know, the ontological payoffs, which is stock standard. It's the only thing running when somebody is disempowered. If I know that that's running. Now, the only reason why I shift so fast is that I know I'm the creator of my reality. So I train people to be a 10 every day, whatever their version of 10 is. I'll go into a supermarket and somebody will say, how you going? I'm going, absolutely fantastic. And they go, what happens? I go, nothing. I just choose it. Uh -huh. you know? Because I know 10s attract 10 experiences. If you're hanging out in a two, you're going to continue to manifest and attract two experiences. So you have a responsibility to find whatever your version of 10 is and start finding some evidence in that state. Happiness is a function of choice. If you ain't happy, you ain't choosing it. You know, the one fundamental question I get asked every single time is, Sally, what was, what was the time in your life when everything changed? Because believe you me, I was a victim, but I had victim mean weakness. So I certainly didn't think that I was a victim. But when I landed the ontological teachings of victim meaning powerless to change the situation, my life changed. Because I didn't realize that I was the one, I was the one creating all of the dysfunction because I had to keep validating my default identity of myself. I had to keep creating crisis to survive. I had to keep creating dysfunctional situations to validate a belief that wasn't even the truth. It was just the truth that my child decided, you know, mm -hmm. when I found the, the distinction choice, I got a choice on how I feel, a choice on how I respond, a choice on what I do, which I've got a freaking choice. I didn't realize I had a choice and my entire world changed. And that was pretty much from 30 to 55. Mm -hmm. um, so being able to impart awareness-based training skills to people at, predominantly the highest level of leadership is where I dance, but also doing podcasts like this and um, being able to, uh, eventually I'd like my education to be online. That's uh, part of my passion and drive in 2021 for it to be able to reach the masses and be, be able to impact more people um, because it's simplistic, but it gets results and they are sustainable results because it's tried and proven from that standpoint. Yes. And I am learning so much just cool. having this conversation with you. So thank you. And um, so if people actually wanted to work with you or learn more about what you're doing or find your books, how do they find you? Cool. So I only operate on LinkedIn. It's the best business medium and it's, um, it just makes a lot of business sense to just have one conduit to focus on. So I write articles on a weekly basis on leadership and on mindset mastery that are unique to my education. So there's a vault of information on my LinkedIn profile um, and because I write on a weekly basis so they can go and it's all free resource to go and have a look at. And if that, if it resonates, cause I'm not for everyone, I'm the first one to say I'm not for everyone. <laughs> cause basically if you're not committed and you don't want to get transformation, don't come anywhere near me really. <laughs> um, because I'm interested in people. Uh, uh, the three cornerstones of my brand are ignite, evolve, liberate, igniting people to get re-impassioned, almost like a co-creative defibrillator. <laughs> you know, is there, is there a heartbeat in there? You know, who are you? You know, who are you on the planet? Evolving them to a new level of consciousness to then be able to have them liberate themselves fully for them to then show up in the world to then be able to pay forward and liberate others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that their leg your legacy matters. I died on the block at 15. I came back of my own accord for a reason. Uh, to be able to awaken humanity to a, a new level of operation. I truly do believe that. Um, so LinkedIn is the vehicle. Um, I offer a one hour free consultation. Uh, and if people are interested in any of this resonates, feel free to just uh, uh, private message me on LinkedIn and I'm more than happy to um, facilitate a conversation. Right. I predominantly work with people over a six month period privately. Um, sometimes uh, usually one-on-one, -on -one, but sometimes in group, depending on the interest of the parties. Um, but love would love to serve anybody uh, where this uh, message has resonated. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today, for all your wisdom. It has been wonderful. So thank you. Really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, God and me acknowledges the God and me. Really appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. So I have one last question before we get off. Oh. And you've already given us so much. Um, but what is your best advice to live an incredible, amazing life? <laughs> sometimes intuitively when you receive messages i'm not gonna say that i'm gonna say that no i'm gonna say that <laughs> i'm gonna say that so i'm not wanting to offend anybody and um because my swearing is um, not the best at the best of times um, but this has context so in the retreats that i used to run i had a uh, award that would be awarded to the person who transformed the most voted by those in, in the retreat 
um, and it was always amazing. But it was a plaque that had a physical light switch on it, and the award was called the Fuck It Switch Award. <laughs> so this is contextual. <laughs> I've had people who've got triple doctorates and masters and um, you know doctors and who have the Fuck It Switch Award meaning more for them than their academic awards because of what it provided. So the distinction, fuck it, is getting present and finding that moment where you go, oh, fuck it, not one more day. And in that moment, everything changes. So who's ever listening to this recording today, I have it that I'm saying this for a reason, that you've arrived and you're hearing this message today for a reason. You've arrived at that point of not one more day. And I'm telling you listeners, right here, right now, I guarantee that if you make that decision, it doesn't matter how, you know, but you do want to make that decision that, God, what would my life look like if I didn't tolerate anything that wasn't working? Mm -hmm. I'll say that again. What would your life look like if you didn't tolerate anything that wasn't working? So as far as an exercise is concerned, so reaching that moment where you flick the switch and two is doing an exercise called 50 tolerations. We have relationship tolerations, financial tolerations, organizational tolerations, uh, attitudinal tolerations. Usually, most human beings have 50, a minimum of 50. I walk into my bathroom, I see that the cabinet door needs to be fixed and I keep complaining about it and I've been doing that for a year. That's a toleration. A toleration is a persistent complaint. Um, holy socks, uh, lingerie that needs to be replaced, you keep complaining about it, you're not doing anything about it. Getting to your car, it's not valet, you keep complaining it's filthy and you've been meaning to... All of that mounts up because coaches always focus on goals, right? But here's the thing. <laughs> you got these things called tolerations that are actually taking you in the opposite friggin' direction, right? So when you do goal setting, you've also got to understand the undercurrents going the other way and do the two together to ensure that that, that level of slipstream can occur, yeah? Mm -hmm. So being able to identify, writing down 50 things, I guarantee they're there, even if I don't know you, I could find them. 50 things that you're tolerating, big, small, or otherwise, I tolerate the fact that I'm not earning what I want to be earning. I keep complaining about that, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Usually in the areas of finance, relationship, um, organizational, uh, attitudinal, um, um, things like, you know, the, the house hasn't been renovated and I keep you know, moaning about the house not being renovated. Well, go and do the budget. Go and find out all the costings. You know, bring it into reality as if you had the money in the bank account, you know? Um, so identifying tolerations is a very, very powerful process with reference to ensuring that it's, um, that it's not taking you in the opposite direction of what it is that you think you're championing. Mm -hmm. Wow. Great, great distinctions. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sally. My pleasure, Belle. My pleasure. Thank you very much for what you're doing in the world too. And appreciative of the opportunity today. Thank you. We'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Bye for now.